Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast where we talk mm. about a film made in the 21st century and the process of writing it. I'm William Coldwell and I'm here with my good friend and co-host Alan Vasquez. Today we're going to be discussing Steve Jobs, a film written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Danny Boyle, and it's based on the book by Walter Isaacson. And we're going to be discussing the adaptation of the script and how that script was brought to life. I think the best place we could begin with mm -hmm. is the fact that it's, it's supposedly an adaptation of a, right. a book. But the book is a, a huge biography, mm -hmm. 570 pages more or less. It it's covers the book, entire yeah. scope of, of Jobs' life and yeah. there's a lot of detail there. Mm -hmm. And um, it... it would not be possible to cover this much content in anything shorter than a 10-part TV series. Absolutely, yeah. So the wonderful thing about this script is that Aaron Sorkin says, I'm not even going to try that. What I'm going mm. to do is make uh, a gripping drama based around some key aspects of Jobs' life, mm -hmm. and through those scenes, we will learn everything we need to know mm -hmm. about about jobs as a character right and this is kind of the point in time where he's he's transforming from being a real person someone who's someone we're going to see on the news regularly and mm. in product launches and is the, a, a major influence yeah. to being kind of a legend a mythological figure someone who having passed away leaves this huge legacy and then people right. want to know what was he like Right, and so there's always that kind of risk that with Hollywood that you know you're making things maybe larger than life, exaggerating things, mm -hmm. and that's certainly true of this script. But at the same time, it's it's very firmly grounded in reality, and especially in a a genuine exploration of character. I think so. It's like it, it's not only a. I think what really helps sell the film is the fact that already right off the bat, you're not gonna hold the facts against it because it's such a it's so structured differently that obviously that didn't happen so that in itself kind of allows that freedom to be creative with it i think i don't think there was anyone really upset with the film or there was any sort of like lawsuits or anything like that i think it was a really good film and i think part of the reason why that was was because of this wonderful three-act structure where we never leave backstage the entire film is backstage. The only times we leave backstage are in flashbacks when we're back in like office or the garage or whatever. But the entire film plays like a, like an action film, like the whole vibe backstage. I mean, can you imagine, you know, being pitched the story producer, like the entire film is going to be backstage and it's just going to be talking. I mean, on paper, it doesn't sound that great. But then when you have Aaron Sorkin, who's, a, you know, a wordsmith, it just becomes this wonderfully entertaining film. You've mentioned two of the key aspects of, mm -hmm. of the, the structure already. We often think of films being done in three acts, but this one is very, very, very rigidly. Three acts. Literally three yeah. acts. This allows this cast of characters to reemerge, mm -hmm. kind of having gone off and lived their lives in the scenes in between right. that we won't see. And we're all catching up with these characters again in three different stages of their lives. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, the character I think we see that most with is is Lisa because she's literally yeah. growing up on, yeah. on screen. Mm -hmm. Everyone seems to have some sort of individual arc mm -hmm. and all of these stories tie together to create a, an ultimate whole at the end. Absolutely. And they all represent a different aspect of Steve Jobs' character. You know, his relationship as a father, you know, his relationship as a boss, his relationship as like a partner, because in a, in a way, you know, the relationship he has with Joanna, even though she's working for him, it really feels like they have a partnership going. Yeah, there's a, and they allude to that kind of ten, uh, sexual tension, maybe. There's a little that, bit of that in there. That yeah. is, but it's all kind of uh, platonic, really, yeah. at the end. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, and so, yeah, so you get to discover this man through his relationships with these characters and the evolution of his relationship with these characters. And um, I think I, recently watching it, I think one of the things that struck me that I didn't really notice before is his relationship with Andy, Andy Hertzfeld this sort of real dislike there's this hostility and it's even though they in some ways respect each other there is a fundamental moral gap in the way they see things and it was really interesting to see this one scene towards the end where andy really just sort of makes it lets him know like i actually really dislike you which yeah. is a very powerful moment that's correct and the script itself opens with this uh media press like right in the center of the action mm -hmm. something's going wrong yes and steve immediately wants to blame andy for what's happening even yeah. though it's a technical failure mm -hmm. and maybe the product isn't ready to launch mm -hmm. but steve immediately wants to know who can fix it mm -hmm. and he's he's uh, he's not being very polite about it right he just wants it done and he's been running his company in such a way that he can throw his weight around yeah and just tell people to do things but time's running out and as mm -hmm. a, a reader and later as a, a spectator with the film you're immediately drawn in because there's suddenly stakes yeah yeah and that's one of the most surprising things and something we really need to emphasize about why this screenplay works mm -hmm. is because it draws you in right from the first second yeah you're wondering what's going on are they going to fix this problem yeah why are these guys arguing why why can't they collectively work together what is happening here absolutely it's it's brilliant how it starts off that way like you like you say it's it, the energy is in the words it's in the you know because steve is such a powerful character and was in real life the stakes are high even though when you really think about it they're not really like the computer can't say hello like that's not a problem really but you know what i mean like in the film and in, in, in the script it's like it's as if like the world depends on it. Yeah, and it makes I mean, you that, feel that way too. That certainly shows the aspect of him that's a perfectionist as well. Mm. That wants this to be, yeah. if it's really going to be a world-changing product, it needs to be evident through the, the perfect presentation. Yeah. This is a guy who obsessed over the details of what the packaging of the computer would look like right. when that's going to be thrown away mm -hmm. a day after opening it. He yeah. was always obsessed with every aspect of the design of the product from the most minimal details to even, I, I think I read somewhere in the book that he was even reviewing in the early motherboards on Apple mm. computers just how they looked. Mm. And for most people that would be completely irrelevant. Then why would yeah. you mind what the, what the circuitry looks like? It's, it's something that you shouldn't even be looking at. You're working with the computer, not... 
not he, messing around inside it. Absolutely. He's a designer of the uh, for the subconscious. It's all these things that we as consumers pick up on subconsciously, but that because he knows that that was the way in, and that's why he was so successful in the end because he understood that there was a part of him that really understood what people, how people operate. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, it's an interesting irony. He's constantly creating these computers without an actual operating system, and he's just creating yeah. what's outside. He's like. Someone will fill that part in, right? Us, like I don't, know, I right? don't get that, but I'll, I'll make sure that it looks and it's people will connect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think that 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 was his genius. He he uh, alluded himself as sort of the conductor of an orchestra, you know. And then one scene where he's talking to Waz and tells him like, "You're the best in your row, so go sit." Yeah. Which you know, I mean, it's ridiculous, but he, in a way, he was right. He was the conductor yeah. as. Even though that came off arrogant, and he was arrogant, but in a lot of ways he was right. Yeah, and we'll see throughout the film, um, he links his own personality to his products Mm -hmm. in a large way. And I think that's another of the reasons why this three-act structure works so well. Three individual product launches. Right. Uh, We've got the 1984 original Macintosh uh, Mm -hmm. launch. Uh, The original Mac has a kind of human-like face, I believe, but they put the floppy drive slightly over to the side so it'd have kind of like a quirky smile. Like a toothy grin, I think it's what it's it's called, yeah. It was meant to look like a face, but not menacing, kind of more something you'd want to interact with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we've got the next cube, which he obsesses over the 90-degree angles of the cube, (laughs) um, you know, which caused a, a massive headache for the next team because he was spending so much money on yeah. on just the uh, the outer shell. Right. But at the same time, it just displays that that drive for perfection. Yeah. And the script mentions this because it it really does. It's great coming from Lisa's point of view, from the kid's point of view of why why is this so important and that innocent questioning of something that he thinks is so obvious, but. For most people, it's not. You they know? don't understand, and I think he, I think maybe on some level, you know, analyzing him, it, it, he maybe subconsciously was trying to make up for his own lack of knowledge of human connection and interaction by trying to perfect this thing. There was this one scene early in the film where uh, Lisa was kept asking him a question that he knew she knew so he was confused as to why she kept asking him that yeah. and then you know he goes up to Joanna and, and asks her you know and she's like well she's probably just trying to engage you you know she's trying to get your attention or she feels like that's a way she wants to talk about something that you want to talk about so he's very limited in in human social sort of like you know connection so I think Maybe in some level, he was trying to overcompensate by trying to create and perfect this thing. Yeah. And so we've got the third act as well goes to yeah. the uh, the iMac. Mm-hmm. Again, another really interesting design. It had translucent sides mm-hmm. so that people could see inside. And yeah. um, Which, by the way, I don't know. Did you have those in England? Did you have those computers? I'm, I'm pretty that sure like they were, they thing, were you know? launched, yeah, worldwide. Because yeah. I remember that when I was a kid, like when those came yeah. to our school, it was like, oh my God, what is this? He was right. All of a sudden, computers became, you know, not like an alien thing. Like it was more accessible. And I think I was like in middle school when those computers came out. Yeah. And it was just like, 
this great new thing. Yeah, it's a fascinating design. He put a, a yeah. handle on it, even mm. though you would never really be carrying it around by the handle, but just to give people the sense, oh, you can pick this up mm-hmm. to invite them in. Oh, you could pick it up. It's not going to harm you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book as well, there's loads more details that couldn't really make it into the film, but there is that lovely flashback to when he's at home. This is before he's married and everything, and Scully yeah. comes over. And his, his house is completely unfurnished. Yeah. And that shot is yeah. almost a perfect frame for the uh, archive image that's in the book of him sat at home in this unfurnished room. But it was because he was so obsessed with mm. design that it took him so long to pick furniture. Mm. He, couldn't, he would think about what is the purpose of a seat? What mm. is the purpose of a table? And then he's spending so much time on this that it, he just wouldn't buy anything. Mm-hmm. Even when his wife uh, moved in with him and, and they raised a family, they would still spend, I think they spent two weeks discussing what kind of washing machine they wanted. What is the purpose <laughs> of a washing machine? Do we want it to make our clothes last longer? Oh Do we God. want it, you know, Can and you in, the end they, what a yeah, in the end they imported some washing machines from Germany that fit right. into their, their ideal of what it should be but i mean that's great like yeah. on, on the one hand i have so much admiration for that like so much respect for obviously I, I, well i think it's a little too much but i mean just i mean look what he did so and again he's he's not a perfect guy he's very snappy he's very um eager to get into a fight with people especially yeah. and he's very opinionated right and he doesn't mind if he's hurting people's feelings and a lot of other people they might get to a higher point in a company by being nice to people around them by being collaborative by mm-hmm. being a good team worker right he's kind of the exact opposite of that right he pushes his opinion to a to such a degree that he gets kicked out of apple the first time yeah and that's where this really ties into the kind of overall arc of the story. He's going from being a young guy who is about to have his first big success to then that not working out and then really trying something different but be, being given so much creativity that that doesn't work out either mm. to finally being allowed to come back into Apple and people really knowing right how we can work with Steve and and really right. get the best out of him without letting the worst of him take over. And then you have the iMac and the kind of triumphal end to the, yeah. the story. Yeah, and I think he, he kind of mellowed out towards the end in a way. And I think people just adapted to him because they saw what the sort of genius that he was. So I think people adapted to his attitude and most people. What you said earlier in, in terms like he didn't he didn't care about what people thought you know he just had this opinion and then that was it like he didn't really care what you thought about it there's a line in the film where he says um when andy says like do you just not want people to like you and he's Mm -hmm. like he's like no that's not what i want but he's like but the thing is is like i don't care whether you like me or not doesn't matter it it doesn't factor into what he and i love it because you, you start seeing all these like different uh, perspectives in the film so you have that perspective and he's saying like you know, you know you're being a dick and then you know you see steve's perspective which is like well it's irrelevant it's irrelevant mm-hmm. to what we have to do why attach emotion and, and he makes it seem like it's not it doesn't even factor and then you have Waz who tells him towards the end 
it's not binary. You can be decent and gifted. Mm-hmm. You can be both. You, you yeah. know, you don't have to choose one or the other. So you have, to, you know, all these different perspectives, which is really interesting. I'm not sure how you would create a character like Steve Jobs out of thin air. The, this kind of screenplay really needs to be biographical because you might not really believe this person is real. Mm. I, th- I think when they, when screenwriters try to do this um, on purpose and try and create someone, they come across as too robotic too little humanity or mm. way too stereotypical, kind of like a Sheldon Cooper kind of character. Mm. Whereas in, in this, he, he does feel very firmly human, but he's very idealistic underneath. And he, the difficulty of the personal interactions is kind of the, the driving force for a lot of these conversations. And Pretty much everyone he talks to comes into conflict with him in some way. Right. When I was reading the the screenplay for the first time, so I, I hadn't seen the film, I just read the screenplay first mm-hmm. and then watched the film. Mm-hmm. And what really shocked me was just how much faster the dialogue went than the way I was reading yeah. it. Yeah. I was reading it thinking, wow, this is a really long film. Mm. These conversations go on for ages, but really... It's just snappy back and forth. It's yeah. just like a political drama walking through corridors and he's kind of managing the all these different aspects at the same time, personal relationships and old grievances and also getting the product launch about about to go and talking yeah. to Joanna and trying to get her to sort out things with, with Lisa and all this different stuff is going on at the same time. Right. And I really didn't realize just how much pace there was going to be in it. And it really comes out well on screen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's really interesting about that. Um, I didn't know this, but it was brought to my attention that when he first wrote, uh, when he was shopping around the social network, it was like this 180 page script and uh, the studios didn't want to, really do it because they thought like this is a really long film and what he actually did was that he actually went and acted it out for them they're like no this is how it's going to sound like and he read the entire thing i think he recorded himself and read the entire script and then send it to them and said, oh, like, well, so i wasn't the only one no 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 <laughs> because you're right when you read i mean 180 pages that is a three-hour film because in General, the general rule is one Yeah, in anyone page. else's book, that's a three hour. Yeah, usually. one yeah. page is one minute of screen time. That's the general rule. Mm-hmm. It, it fluctuates, but that's the general consensus. So 180 is three hours. So he had to convince the studio that it was not a three hour film. Yeah, this shooting script has 188, I think, or 189. Yeah. 189 in the, in the shooting script. Yeah. So I really thought this was a going to be a really long film. Right. And then... By watching it, I go, oh, wow, they just covered eight pages in the, like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's like a rhythm. You know, he's a, he's a great sort of, he listens to, so this story is that when he was a little kid, his parents would take him to a theater, watch a bunch of plays. He says he remembers when he was like six years old, they took him to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which, by the way, no kid should ever go watch a, 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 a stage play like that. But... You know, as a six-year-old, he has no idea what's going on. Like, just seeing the actors perform, but he, has, he doesn't understand the context. But he says the one thing that struck him was that he heard dialogue as music. It had a rhythm. And he 
that was ingrained in him. So when he starts writing dialogue to him, he thinks in, in rhythm and in, in music almost. So to him, dialogue is music. And you can tell like he's there's a rhythm to everything exchanged between all the characters. And one thing that I noticed also watching the film and also a lot of his other work like Social Network, he, he has this thing where they're having a conversation about one thing and they'll stop and then the other character will start talking about something else and then the other character will follow that and then halfway through that conversation we'll finish the previous conversation they were having yeah. this this happens more than once here. Uh, yeah it happens uh, it a lot it especially happens when he's talking to Boz and it's it's almost like a deflection yeah, uh, yeah. for a second it happens with Joanna as well and it, he's he's deflecting he's avoiding them getting a real answer out of him or, or getting him to really open up and be yeah himself it's yeah. it's like a protective barrier it works for his character yeah it works perfect for his character but it's it's kind of a sorkin thing too because i remember that being in the social network as well which is also about a, a tech guy mark zuckerberg and i remember in the first scene of that film is like eight minutes long or something and it's just literally him just talking to this girl and 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 he and it's the same sort of thing he would just deflect deflect and then I, I don't know that's sort of his style i think and again it's kind of like a music thing tempo up and down and i don't know it's very intricate the there way is, structures there's certainly a lot more about the theater in this screenplay than most mm -hmm. you do get the sense that you could very easily transpose this into a theatrical setting oh yeah for sure um it, it wouldn't have many elaborate scenes to build or anything right. um so I, I think it could be done very easily yeah there's also some kind of self-referential kind of moments in the the screenplay where it does come across as very shakespearean i think uh jobs yes. at one point is kind of saying oh i'm i'm like julius caesar i'm surrounded by enemies and things right. like this so there's that kind of there is that kind of shakespearean aspect to it yeah uh, as well which must have influenced Sorkin to, to some degree. Yeah. But it, the way Shakespeare would write um, kings and, and you know, high-functioning people of, of his time is to basically make up scenes and to, to elaborate who the character is. You make up mm. a scene that didn't really happen. All of these characters weren't all assembled in the same room or on the same battlefield at the same time. But by doing that, you can really get to the heart of what you want to convey mm. to the audience mm -hmm. in a very simplified manner. And so what we've got with this structure and the characters that he chooses, we have characters who represent certain aspects of Job's life without having to introduce the whole array of characters that you'd find in the biography. Right. So we, we never meet uh, Job's real wife, even though he's got his... The kids from his marriage mm. they're not introduced in this i'm not sure that joanna hoffman was around for the the, the 98, 98 launch she was 98 launch yeah. for example but it doesn't matter because we as an audience are able to read around that and think they represent something in yeah. this story yeah it's it each of these characters is about a different aspect and when you combine all of those stories together you get a sense of who Jobs is. Mm -hmm. and, and we'll look at each of the characters and kind of discuss mm -hmm. what each one might represent to us in, in a second. You know, when you mentioned the characters and sort of what they represent, that's very much what I 
what I think too. You know, they represent an aspect of him. For example, for Joanna, I kind of see him as like his sort of moral center, like his conscious in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, because through her, we see a more humanistic side of him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she's always there to remind him of what's really important. Yes. What's right, what's wrong. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and also it's interesting to see that she's very unfazed by him. She stands up to him. Um, they reference that the reason she's chosen for this, this mm-hmm. conscience character is because she had, they used to have an unofficial award at Apple yeah. for who could stand up yeah. to Steve. And, and she would, she won multiple years. Right. So. She won three years in a row or something, yeah. <laughs> um, which is great that they would have an award like that. Uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. Like she was totally unfazed by him. You have all these other characters who have very intense emotional reactions to him. She is the only one who doesn't is totally unfazed by him. And I think that's the reason why he respected her so much because he could see that he didn't have the same effect that he had on other people. She was not emotional about it. And the only time that she did become emotional or in the, at least in the film is uh, when she, in the third act, when she finally was like, you need to fix this with Lisa and you could tell that this has been bugging her for so long. And like now it's yeah, just like... That, that's the point where she says, if you don't do that, I'm resigning. Right. She finally gives him an ultimatum and is like, mm-hmm. fix it. Um, which is a really powerful scene. And, and I think, I, I, I feel like I got to mention, every actor brought so much to each role. Like it was just incredible. It was a very authentic portrayal from everyone's part. It felt like a actor showcase in a way. Like there was a lot of emotional beats and it was like fast and it was great. It was great to watch all these great actors sort of just play off each other. Exactly. And that, you know, I think that kind of ties into the, that Shakespearean aspect Mm -hmm. a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Then you really feel the presence of each of the actors and, yeah, they become very much larger than life. And let's start with uh, Michael Fassbender. Yep. In the early, in the early acts, in Act One especially, he doesn't really look like Steve Jobs. No, he doesn't. So when we when we think of what we thought Jobs looked like at that time, I don't know. I I imagine that kind of long fringe of hair covering his forehead and yeah. his um. He's 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 still kind of just easing out of his kind of hippie days where he'd walk around with no shoes on and stuff like that. So, and doing tons of acid. Yeah, he was a bit more <laughs> unkempt back in those days. Yeah. Whereas in the way Fassbender looks, he's he's big, he's muscly, he's kind of bursting out of his t-shirt, uh, and right, he's got his hair swept back. He, he's looking kind of like a superhero. And at first, I was a bit cautious, thinking he doesn't really look like Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he was able to embody that uh, that attitude that mm. we associate with Jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's when you start to kind of get drawn into the film and think, okay, it doesn't matter if he doesn't look exactly like him. Again, it's all representative of something. Mm-hmm. It's symbolic yeah. rather than they're not trying to make a biopic. Right. And, and, and that, that, that was a brilliant, that's how good he is. The fact that he looks nothing like him, but yet he's exuding mm-hmm. the same vibe that, you know, with Steve Jobs, the real Steve Jobs. And uh, yeah, I remember when he was casted, I was like, I don't, I don't see that, but he did a great job. And he also did a good job in not overplaying the, the, the arrogant side. There was always like moments of 
humanity that you you would find within him mm -hmm. one of the one of the moments that i really liked was uh in the last act when he had that confrontation with andy where andy tells him i really don't like you and he walks away and he's trying to go back and he's trying to focus on whatever he's trying to focus on and there's like flashes of like lisa and it's quiet and then that's what's also brilliant about the film like there's so much snappy dialogue so when it's silent it really draws you in because it's so rare and in those moments you see what he's thinking about and he's really good in those moments too of vulnerability yeah and there is a rhythm to mm -hmm. the the dialogue in the film as as you've mentioned already and it kind of ties into that idea of Steve Jobs plays the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Fassbender is the one who's in charge of the timing and the rhythm mm -hmm. and ensuring that because he's going to be in every scene, so he has yeah. to ensure that all of these long takes all have this great rhythm that it is just bringing the viewer along with them on this journey. Yeah. And you'd never feel like there's a moment to rest and get off the ride. You know, you're you're just being drawn along right to the Absolutely. very end. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it it, it it's a real testament to, to how that was done is he has to be in charge of controlling the pace of all of these conversations. Mm. He's the guy in charge mm. as Jobs, you know? Yeah, no, he was definitely the leader of the troop. And Kate Winslet as Jonah Hoffman, which we talked about, you know, right now, is uh, did a great job at, like, completely disappearing into this character. And the one scene where, like, really struck me with her was when she was, you know, telling him, like, you know, fix it or whatever. She's getting emotional. And her acting in that scene is, um, you know, there's this thing where, like, with acting, like, uh, audiences react more to when actors are trying to hold in their tears as opposed to, cr like, literally crying. There's, like, that's sort of a technique. It's, like, a human thing from an audience perspective. Mm -hmm. When you see an actor trying to, like, not cry... Like when they're welling up almost. Yeah. Right. That hits you stronger than when you actually see the tears mm -hmm. because there's more of a connection there for, for whatever reason. And, and she and then that scene, she really brings that in. You know, she's trying not to break because she's been strong, unemotional. But then there's that. And she did a great job there as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm, I've just got a couple of extra notes on mm -hmm. Jobs as a character before we start looking at the other ones. Sure. Uh, as I go through the screenplay, different color pens, taking notes. Mm -hmm. One of the notes that I eventually had to come up with an acronym for is the yep. reality distortion field. Oh, so yeah. I'm just writing RDF in the right. in the margins. This is a big part of the legend of Steve Jobs, let's mm -hmm. say, that he had this reality distortion field. He could believe anything at any moment, and no one would really know what he was going to believe. He might tell you an idea sucks one day. The next day he turns around and acts like he invented it and says, oh, could you do this? That, that might fix it, right? And you'd have to pretend that it was his that idea. You, yeah, that he just came yeah. up with that rather than that you had told him that yesterday and he told you it sucked. So Joanna eventually does confront him about the reality distortion field and he says something like, yeah, I, I, don't, like, I don't just know about it. Joan, Joan Baez sang that to me or something like that you know, yeah when when they dated before which is a nice little bit of dialogue yeah um but that's something we need to consider when when looking at his relationships with characters he will misremember things and yeah. they're kind of a lot of them especially was really just trying to set him straight set the record straight that isn't what happened steve <laughs> <You know>? yeah <laughs> yeah 
And there's a that's a coin that I think maybe Joanna Hoffman, whatever created, but she brings it up a lot of times in this in this in the film, and then he's always like doesn't really phase him until the very end when she brings up the the magazine, the Time magazine cover, mm-hmm. where he thought he was um, replaced in the cover. He thought he was mm-hmm. in the running when he never was, and she brings up this information to him, and it's a one time where we see him it hits him that yeah. there is you can this, see the cogs yeah. turning he's like oh then, wow like yeah. how did i miss that like it, yeah. it hits him that there is this reality that only he exists in yeah and especially with the time magazine cover that that comes up in act one at first yeah. uh he another thing we need to think about jobs he associates himself with his products he's obsessed with design mm. and there's a great bit of dialogue towards the end when he's finally opening up with lisa and he says I'm poorly made. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's mm. most other people see their behavior in different terms. Mm-hmm. I made a mistake. I, I'm a flawed person, but mm. I'm poorly made. It's design terminology about himself. Mm. I, I thought that was a great little. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I like that. So we're going to look at all these different character arcs and uh, another, another of the notes that I was uh, making in the screenplay. Yeah. I wrote down the word meta at one point. Meta. Yeah. Because there's one, there's one oh, great bit of dialogue yeah. which really just sums up what this film is really yeah. about. And this is what Job says. He says, it's like five minutes before every launch, mm-hmm. everyone goes to a bar, gets drunk, and tells me what they really think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is meta. Like he's literally talking about the script itself. The, this it's is so what funny, happens. Yeah. So uh, the first one out of the bar, coming in, reeking of whiskey, <laughs> is uh, his old partner, Steve Wozniak. Let's, Steve let's Woz. start with him. Yes. So these are, they're an iconic duo in Apple legend. That's right. At the start of this script, they've already begun to drift apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Apple II was Woz's creation. Mm-hmm. Then the Apple Lisa was going to be the next thing. Uh, Steve has kicked off that team and creates the Macintosh with the kind of B team at Apple while right. all the main resources are working on the Lisa. And then this, this Macintosh ends up kind of overtaking the development of the Lisa. It, it takes on a life of its own as a product mm-hmm. and becomes way more important but the Apple II is, was his creation, as is the, the Apple I. And this is where there's a lot of unresolved problems from that early relationship. Because they, you know what it's like with childhood friends. Uh, you can kind of revert to being a child sometimes when you're back around them. You, you revert to that earlier point mm, in, your, right. in, your, in your relationship. And yeah. you, know, you kind of fool around more like you're a teenager than... You might be the CEO of a company, but you're still... Exactly. And even in the script, they kind of revert to 60s and 70s speech patterns. When these two are talking, especially, Steve uses the words brother and, I don't know, things like that, and, you know, like far out or something like that. Or mm. I think this is like blowing my mind or something like that. He, he uses a lot more kind of like 60s and 70s kind Slang. of slang yeah. when he's talking to was which mm. i thought was a really nice little detail the key difference between these two is was believes in customization 
and Jobs believes in end-to-end control. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that can really be reconciled because they're constantly going to be arguing about these, these minor things. And the first flashback to the garage really is about the fact that uh, was wants lots of ports for people to be able to plug in things to the computer. And Steve is like, you just need two. That's it. We're going to have full control over the system. No one can mess with it. And was being such a creative engineer, he wants to be able to always tinker with things and customize it, modify it. And they, they don't even have the same vision of, about who they're going to sell their products to. Mm. Was wants to mix the things for uh, enthusiasts. But really, he was about to give his ideas away for free. Steve saw the, well, Steve Jobs saw the potential right. in them in making money out of this thing. Right. And that's where he's going to take over and yeah become and, the beast he is. Yeah. No. And, and it just it's a very accurate representation of who their characters are. You have Wasp is a much more laid back character, and mm-hmm. that you know, like yeah, you can have different options, you can customize it, whatever. And then you have steve jobs is like no they only get two options like he wants control which is actually what i find is a a theme in the film this need for mm-hmm. control that he has inside of him but it also shows you know he just wants uh it takes a lot for him to get to those two options like in the scene in the last act where you know they're trying to pick the right shark they've gone through like 40 sharks to finally get to the right yeah, One. the picture they're going to put on the presentation. Right, yeah. which is not even, like, it's nothing. Like it's just it's, a picture of a shark. Yeah, yeah. but, but the, the amount of work that he puts into it just so that the final two options are really good. But, I mean, it kind of, if you really think about it as characters, there's this need to control, which speaks about this insecurity that he has. And Waz, who's a little bit more relaxed and laid back, and, and I feel like in, in his, he's a little bit more... I don't like using the word moral, but you know he he looks at things not in the the same way, and he constantly is trying to get acknowledgement from Steve Jobs. Like, yeah, that's he, his he current... does think that the um, the personal aspect is just as important mm-hmm. as the monetary. Right. Yeah. So that's where a big part of that comes in, mm-hmm. and was does mention you know that that Steve overlooked people who had helped found the company and was had to give them stock options because otherwise they were going to get nothing Mm -hmm. and uh steve is i think he had a great great line there about something like well they need to make me remember them Mm. you know if if i've forgotten anyone it's because you didn't shine you didn't stand out right which is whereas is more you know (laughs) he's more about participation counts put in the legwork you 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 still participated you deserve to be acknowledged and I think that's also why they were really good friends. There was a definite yin and yang to the relationship that mm-hmm. I think that they attracted to each other. They saw in each other what they didn't have, and I, I feel in a way, and I think that's why they were so successful to begin mm-hmm. with in the beginning. They created this Apple II and was very successful. So I think that yin-yang was definitely a part of it. Yeah. Um, Seth Rogen, very well cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you need a lovable character. Of course. You always got to cast Seth Rogen if he's like, of course, you see that man and like you're in a good mood. Yeah. <laughs> so he did so well. By, he did, uh, yeah. Embodying the character of Woz. Back in the, in the screenplay, there's the, the flashback as well, which kind of gives you a bit more 
of that kind of mythological sense of that the the dream of what a silicon valley company is it it starts in someone's garage and right from there it turns into a multi-billion dollar enterprise mm -hmm. and in the screenplay itself i think uh sorkin writes he doesn't need to write the address or anything no. like that he just calls it the garage like that right i mean it just and we all know volumes. exactly what they're referring to absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah because this is the this is a story we hear time and time again silicon valley all it took was college dropouts with a dream and a and garage yeah and a couple tabs of acid yeah <laughs> <laughs> um another great uh quote from that point as well steve is kind of showing how he feels about end-to-end -end control mm -hmm. and he sees it in a way that is isn't immediately obvious to us but it's always been a part of that paradox of what apple is as a, a company because they always try to make customers think that they are the creative company i think the word they mm. use is impute so you impute this feeling through advertisements and and through your corporate culture and all this stuff that that this is what you stand for and they've always been the creative company but at the same time, they're the one that's been most resilient to individual software development, the most resilient to open source use, the most resilient to third party mm. uh, hardware and just getting devices to run with, with an Apple Mac can be problematic. You know, mm. if you've got a hard drive used on a Windows computer, you've got to reformat the whole thing before you can use it on your Mac. Right. And no one wants to erase all their, their data to of do course. that. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, so that's always been the paradox at the heart. But what there's a great bit of dialogue where Steve is explaining why that is. And it's because he thinks of himself as an artist. And he says, when Dylan wrote Shelter from the Storm, he didn't ask people to contribute to the lyrics. Which he's got a point there. So that's his point. And it, yeah. it sounds great when it's put to you like that. Why should these things be free for everyone to modify? They're going to make it bad. You need a great designer mm. like Steve Jobs to go and make them perfect. That's the mm. way he thinks. And then we're never going to come to an agreement between these two things. I think as a customer, it's kind of what you prefer at the end of the day. Right? Do you prefer that, that experience, the one they've designed for you, or do you want to make your own thing? Mm. And kind of maybe i think that's where steve jobs from my personal opinion kind of was slightly lost in the world of uh information technology of computing mm. so he, i don't think he realized just how important it is to people to make their own solutions to things to make things work the way they want them to work that's what i was that's what i was thinking is you know if i had to pick one mm -hmm. i would pick i want to make my own I yeah. want to be the creator of my own sort of journey in that in that sense. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we all like reading good books by right. good authors. We all like songs by great musicians. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and write our own books or Absolutely. make our own songs. Yeah. I think if he were to if you were if he was here, he'd be like, "Well, then go build your own computer. Like you create. Yeah. Whatever. Um, Challenge accepted. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 
but I think that, but I think it also he the reason why it it, it was so successful and he had a really good his vision was successful was because I think a lot of people don't fall into that. Maybe you and I have that perspective, but I think most people, and I could be wrong here, but I think a lot of people would rather be told what to do. Oh yeah, especially when you, it's it's not just about being told what to do, but some people, we've got to still remember that for the vast majority of people on the planet, uh, computers came around during their lifetime. So mm. people have had to adapt to new technology during this last couple of generations. Yeah. And people who weren't brought up with home computing, the next generation will be fine because they're they're playing with these yeah. things from the age of two now. But oh yeah, that, this next generation should be fine. Yeah, but <laughs> they're good. There's been a big migration over and just mm -hmm. teaching people basic skills like using an email or things like that. You don't want. Remember how bad Windows ninety five was for viruses and things like that, and everything would just collapse. So, yeah. oh my god, I just know. remember that image of the Windows ninety five. Yeah. Wow. Anyways, I haven't thought about it in years. Down memory lane. Um. Yeah. So, and this this story could have been told with a character of Bill Gates, maybe instead of was or something like that. They they were quite close, and they've always had that rivalry as well. Mm. Jobs and Gates. Um, you know, that could be an alternative to using was just to convey that same story. Yeah, that could have been a little bit like a Amadeus type mm -hmm. of vibe where you have these two sort of artists competing with each other. But they could have gone down that route. There's a story there for sure. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And I think Bill Gates yeah, is it's, mentioned. It's just, but it's just a being about that alternative vision for right. how things should be. Right. They have come to represent that for us. Um, all right, let's let's run quickly into Act Two for Was. Uh, by that point, Steve has gone off to Next Computers. When they meet, at first it's very friendly, and they they say they love each other, but something's wrong. And there's been this Fortune interview which has caused a rift between them. Right. Uh, so Was has said to the press essentially that. Uh, Steve can be an insulting and hurtful guy. I look forward to a great product and wish him success, but his integrity I cannot trust. And mm -hmm. I, uh, at this point, Jobs feels very betrayed by mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. The fact that his integrity can't be trusted. Right. It's, that's a, a, it's pretty, a real uh, attack on his character. Oh, of course. That's a very personal jab. And um, But I think that scene played out really great because you could feel the tension and the subtext but you also see like they just they want to be friendly but there's that that mm -hmm. riff that you say and uh so i think this is the scene where it takes place by the orchestra of the stands mm -hmm. i think this is when he delivers his whole speech about him being the conductor yeah so th this argument yeah. really starts to snowball and um one of the things that was really says that gets to the heart of the matter is I'm the only one who knows that this guy here is someone you invented. Right, right. Because he remembers the times back in the 70s when they were just free spirits and trying to come up with cool ideas that yeah. might change the world someday. Mm -hmm. the, the legend of Steve Jobs is something Steve Jobs has invented and has worked on and has fostered that image. And these product launches, all of this stuff, it's all part of creating this alternative personality the public persona of steve right, jobs you right. know but was 
is still he's been there from the beginning so he knows what the real guy is like as well mm -hmm. and he's calling bullshit on just yeah. how far this is going um by act three this is the final showdown and it looks like these differences will never be reconciled and mm -hmm. in in the story um was is in the crowd uh during the kind of the the um the practice run through they're doing before the real presentation and, and everything seems pretty amicable again everything seems good they seem like they're friends but when they get to talking again it's not looking good yeah and they, and they put on a show for everybody there because you know they start this is the first time they're arguing in front of other people they even have to call joanna to come in and kind of uh deal with the situation and then this is where Waz delivers one of my favorite lines in the in the film, which is, it's not binary. You can be gifted and decent. Um, and and you could tell that it was getting to... Yeah. To He's see. saying there's no excuse. Right. There's no excuse. Right. It doesn't matter how well designed that product is. You yeah. are still responsible for being a decent person to everyone else around you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I think... And you could also see, you know, there's different levels to it. You could also see uh, Waz's sort of um, respect for him. Like, he respects him so much. But, you know, I respect mm -hmm. your artistry and all that. So I think there's there's a lot of conflict in there that I think Seth Rogen really brought that you could read. Yeah. Um, Waz, uh, he's going to bow out to the film at that point. Uh, another right. great line he says, I'm tired of being Ringo when I know I was John. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I love <laughs> Sorkin uses great references like that. Um, at, at another point, uh, Steve refers to Was as Rain Man. Oh my God! Yeah, and those kind of little that jokes, one got me it, so mad. It, it's when, such great pop culture reference, so yeah. you immediately know what he means by that. Of course, and I, I just like I when I heard that the first time I watched it, I was like, Oh my God! Like that is like such a like it's beyond the pale. Right? That's such like, a douchebag yeah. thing to say, but yeah. um. You just call him that. Another great thing, just to note before we finish talking about was, mm -hmm. there's a lovely little bit in the script, which I have just been inspired by in, in terms of writing screenplays as well. Mm. How to use the techniques, the, the format of the screenplay. Sorkin uses one of the parentheticals, where you just have something written in brackets underneath the character's name. And it says was, and in between brackets it says the end of this friendship. Mm. And then Waz speaks. And as a reader, you immediately know, okay, the director can do something or the actors can do something to show they've mm. gone past the point. That's interesting, yeah, yeah. So it's a really neat little note. It's just a couple of words, but I almost didn't realize you could do that when you're writing a screenplay. Yeah, I, it's You could not... just write in the end of this friendship and you immediately know what's happened. The actors can interpret that the way they need to. right. Yeah, it, it is rare because usually the, the rule of thumb when writing a script is you're not directing. You're just, you know, writing the, the script. You're just mm -hmm. writing the words. It's not... But this is neater you know, than directing. This is neater because it doesn't tell you what to do. It's just telling you this is the moment you should mm. do whatever you're going to do to show that. This is do it, it at this moment. Right. Yeah. I got you. Yeah, it's, a, it's different because, you know, Tarantino when he i've read a couple of his scripts and his scripts are very different too like he writes almost like a novel he puts descriptions in there that are not essential so it's yeah, fascinating so, how Sorkin is different. great at yeah. very short character descriptions that convey a lot of information mm -hmm. in in 
the minimum amount of words. Yeah. And that kind of, that joke, like, oh, I'm tired of being Ringo when I know it was John. It doesn't take many words, but it means a lot more because we immediately think back to the whole story of the Beatles breaking up and all this stuff. And then we reimagine was and jobs in that kind of scenario. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, he's really great with that. And and he also is good with like, you know, there's a lot of not rambling on, but there's a lot of constant dialogue. But then there's moments like you say where there's just like a one sentence and it speaks volumes. Like that's all you have to say. So he definitely kind of varies it up a little bit. Like there's again this a rhythm thing. Like they blah 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 and then like just a one note and then blah blah blah. Then one note. It's like music, essentially. Yeah. It's great. Um, let's look at Lisa now. As Lisa. The next, yeah. next character. Uh, so as I mentioned at the beginning, by virtue of her age, mm -hmm. she's the character that changes the most over the course of this story. Mm -hmm. So we literally see her grow up. She's five years old, I believe, in the first act, nine yeah. years old in the second act, and 19 in the final act. Mm -hmm. So there's a big transformation I think she's written a little bit too smart for her own good in a way. Like, it's almost unbelievable that a nine-year-old is this smart or mm. um, well, even she, as a five-year-old, she's right. saying things that seem kind of not what you'd imagine the average five-year-old. But then I guess this is kind of forgiven because she's meant to be a very smart kid and the, the daughter of a... Of a genius, of a, essentially. Yeah, supposed uh, a genius. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, I... I there are some things, but you know, there's a lot of kids I think who sometimes act a little bit older than their their age. But I, I do I do find that her transformation or her evolution as a character is one of forgiveness in a way. She represents she's she's the result of Steve's sort of you know um, unable to be a parent, and she's had to deal with that. And then you see that in the last scene when she um. She brings up the the magazine article, and when he was quoted as saying that, I don't know how many percent of like the American population could be her father, which is like a full circle to the first conversation they had in the first mm -hmm. act when yeah. she wasn't there, but he was having it with Chris Ann. So it, it kind of goes full circle in that way. So you see, she's like the result of that conflict and that part of uh, Steve Jobs' character, which mm -hmm. is being a father. Yeah, and he, he hasn't resolved his own issues about right. adoption and his own uh, kind of concept of family and responsibility and these things. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have a choice with, with Lisa. This isn't a planned pregnancy. It's it's not the same right. uh, thing, but he has to deal with it. And in the first act, he doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't want to acknowledge he's the mm -hmm. father he lies about the Apple Lisa acronym for the computer. Right. He's basically just trying to deny it, even though the lawsuit's gone through and, you know, the court's already ruled that the chances are so high that they're going to say he's a father unless he can prove otherwise. Right. It's also a great vehicle, the, the use of uh, Lisa as a child using the the Macintosh intuitively, knowing how to, mm. to make a painting on, on the computer screen, having never seen one before, 
it's illustrating that point that we mentioned about the next generation they're growing up with these computers and right. immediately knowing what to do whereas older people had to kind of transition over to computers right it's saying the macintosh is so simple a five-year-old can pick it up and start playing with it yeah and it showcases that too that you know steve was really good at making it simple so that you know she could do it uh but i think you know the thing about her character um is i don't know like i feel like she she's very different from him in a lot of ways you know i think at one point joanna calls her you know an earnest unironic kid you know everything that's not steve so i think she she her she's the heart of the film in many ways i think i think by the end which is kind of weird because the entire film there's not a lot of overly emotional moments like you know very sugary like sweet moments it's it's all very sort of not unemotional but it's only towards the end when they have that moment like the film almost becomes a little like too sweet in a way yeah because well, they, they were i think he wanted to end it with a positive note. yes yeah and uh, really it wasn't just he could have ended it with a positive note of just a product launch but it's the fact that he's resolved these issues with his daughter and they yes they finally have got some sort of an understanding yeah after so many years yeah. and so, illustrated by these three scenes it's a well-earned ending i mean you you, as an audience you earn that because of everything that's come before but it's interesting because it turns out that that becomes sort of the theme of the film like him being a father it's uh in the previous scene before that joanna tells him you know uh she pretty much tells him like you know you know i love you you know you care more about what people make than their money like you i love that you care so much but but when you're a father you know, that's supposed to be the best part of you. And it's yeah. the worst part of you. And so, you know, a few scenes later, he's there with her and he just, you could tell he makes that choice of, you know, being there for her and being a father. Yeah. And Lisa weirdly is able to both be an opposite. She's kind of like a, a more pure, not yet uh, corrupted by, the Steve Jobsness of that's within her, but at the same time, you know, they kind of allude to the fact that she's picking up a lot from him. Um, and at one point, I think he says, even unironically to her, sometimes it seems like you just keep saying what you want without listening. <laughs> and that's right. what Steve Jobs right. does. He doesn't listen to people. He says what he wants and believes what he wants to believe. She's got a little bit of him inside. And it's of funny how he doesn't notice yeah. when he's telling Lisa off for doing that that that's probably because she's copying him. Yeah, she definitely has that in her. It's like um Luke having a little bit of that Darth Vader in him. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, yeah. A- around the middle of act 2 mm-hmm. that's when he starts to realize he has to try and connect with her. Yeah. that he can't just deny this it's it's not going to go away and joanna is the one who's kind of guiding him in the right direction mm-hmm. um in terms of learning how to connect and she says that if she's asking him questions it's because she's worried and the way to solve that is to ask her questions about her life. Then there's that touching scene where he asks about the music she's listening to. Right. And it really puts her on the spot because she, she's not used to being asked. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know what to say, really. She's, she's trying to explain it to him and she's caught off guard and she doesn't really yeah. know. But she wants to share it suddenly because suddenly he's interested. 
Yeah, that and was a great scene. Yeah. And there's that beautiful bit at the end, which I think I watched the film, checked the script again, and then went and found the scene in the film. I think they changed. It's one of the few bits I think they actually changed is um, when she goes and hugs him, she says to him, I want to live with you under her breath, like she whispers it to him. And it's not actually there in the script. I think it just says, good luck. And then that line comes up later. Mm. But it works so well in the film to, mm. to have that 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 heartbreaking uh, hug. And then she's got to leave and go back to school. And really, she just wants to spend more time with her. Yeah, father. You know, that's yeah. what this whole thing has been about. She's been just desperate to try and get to know him better. And I think that's maybe what kind of uh, pushes him to being more of a a presence in her life because now all of a sudden he feels needed it's like it, she's calling to him so i think that's the seed that sets up the last act when they have their their yeah so by the, by the last act mm -hmm. she's an adult she's she's offered harvard and right. is really becoming her own person and maybe doesn't need the same kind of father-daughter relationship she would have needed mm -hmm. at that age so the relationship itself is far more complex and she's not present, but she is mentioned. So there's the arguments with Andy about the tuition fees and yeah. Joanna is talking yeah. about he needs to resolve the issues with Lisa and she's going to go and find her and get her to come back so that Steve can talk to her. And that's when all of these different things that have been alluded to throughout the earlier parts of the film can all come together and create some sort of conclusion for us. So he explains about the Lisa acronym for the computer that really it was named after her. Yeah. He said, of course it was named after you. Yeah. Um, and the very last touching thing is that he's kept that painting that she made mm. uh, all those years ago on the original Macintosh. There's some interesting use of that symbolic screenplay style where he's kind of foreshadowing that he's going to create the iPod, um, even oh, though yeah. this is a couple of years too early for what's right. really going on. But it's it's a very nice touch that he's saying, I love that. I'm going to get rid of that. That Walkman's going to be obsolete. Yeah, like <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to put a thousand songs in your pocket or something like that. Yeah, it's that just foreshadowing. Cool. And again, his costume in that third act oh yeah it isn't what he was wearing at that product launch but it's the steve jobs we all kind of imagine so it yeah. works so well yeah. because we think oh he's finally become the steve jobs we've come to know by that last scene absolutely yeah and i think that's like the, the last act is michael fassbender's um like that's his when he's like flying as mm -hmm. like steve yeah. jobs like it's full-on you could really get a sense of that this is Steve Jobs for yeah. sure. It, so it might be anachronistic, but it's mm -hmm. we get why. As an audience, we get why, and it, it's, it's not too bothersome. It works well. Yeah. Next character to look at yeah. is uh, John Scully. Mm -hmm. So the real story behind this, or at least the background details, which are not really explained in the film until kind of towards the end, and... Even then, I think you would understand the story between these two characters a bit better if you'd read the biography mm -hmm. or had a bit more knowledge about Apple as a company. Scully is the one who really gets jobs kicked out of Apple. Mm -hmm. But when they first met, 
it was Jobs who was courting him and really wanted him to come to Apple. He was working at Pepsi. Right. And he was more of a traditional East Coast CEO, uh, you know, clean cut guy. Mm-hmm. And um, he got caught up in Steve's reality distortion field a bit. And he really right. thought that he and Steve had a special connection that he could maybe even play that father role in Steve's life. Yep. And together they would do great things. When we meet him, I really love how it's, it's done in the screenplay. When we meet Scully for the first time, he stood there. It's very early in the morning, but he's got a glass of right. two glasses and a bottle of wine. Mm. And there's that kind of companionship, maybe even romantic kind of element about standing there holding the two glasses. And, yeah. yeah. You know, he's, they, they feel very, at this point at the beginning, they're very close. Yeah. And, uh, it's not going to go well because unfortunately Scully was led to believe that he had a special connection with jobs, but it turns out you can't really have a special connection with someone who always has an agenda. Yeah. And is is willing to hurt people's feelings and really, really hurt them. But we go from this kind of almost, yeah, romantic, but then there's this also, there's another dynamic of him standing in and playing that father figure he right. he says that he's proud of steve and uh sorkin adds a great little line after that like that always means a lot to steve so the when you hear that line show that 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 means a lot to you because you're lacking this father figure mm. and scully's trying to figure out um how he can be uh well, he's trying to figure out whether there's something going on in Steve's psychology in, in the terms of being adopted. Yeah. And that's a question that will come up in each of the acts. Yeah. I think he represents yeah. that sort of like dilemma that he has, you know, being a father, not only to him being a father, but his own father. You know, they even have that flashback when they're at that restaurant and it's revealed that that's actually Steve's biological father. Oh, yeah, we'll get there in a second, yeah. Yeah, This but, is a great bit. Yeah, and so, like, in you know, in the beginning, you have, um, you know, like you said, he was had the wine, and it's like, you know, you have this mm-hmm. connection there. And you could tell, you know, John really cared for him. Yeah. There was this real connection, at least from his part. I don't know, when you get into the second act, it's almost like, obviously, things are upside yeah. down. So in the first act, this is still reality distortion, Steve, and he tells him, you're the only person who sees the world the same way I do. Yeah. He's got, and he's got Scully caught up with it. By the second act, we know Steve has gone off to this other company, but we don't know why until he talks to Scully. Right. Which and that's is, when yeah. we get the flashbacks. The way I read it, the first time I, I read the, the scene, uh-huh. and there's this beautiful interweaving of the, the things that were said in the past, and the way that they're interpreting these things now. Mm. Probably the most visually satisfying part of the film as well. Absolutely. Especially in that it keeps the tension up so high and everything works so well because it's intertwined. But it's also quite fun to read those two scenes separately. So mm. only reading the stuff that happened mm. uh, in the past and then only reading the, the scene in the present. That's really interesting because in the film, they're very much like... Well, they're cut together in such a way that yeah. they they um, increase the impact of things 
that were said mm. in the past and then it, it really does add to the rhythm of the, oh, the yeah. whole thing. I mean, these conversations are happening mm-hmm. almost simultaneously. Like it's yeah. a, almost every other two exchanges, like you're going back and forth and it's escalating, escalating because as an audience, this is where all this information is being revealed to us of what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think like the whole sequence is like eight minutes or something like it's constant escalation. Yeah. And I think it's almost like a crescendo point in the film. Not just it's with, a lot of pages. It's a lot of pages. <laughs> and also the music rising and rising and like it, it, it hits a climax and it's yeah. very emotional. They're both very angry. In it's these perfectly scenes. placed in the screenplay mm-hmm. right in the middle. Yes, yeah. it's, it's the key moment of act two. So it's right in the middle yeah. and and it has that power because of the placement as well. But yeah, re- really fun thing to do is just read those two scenes separately so oh, that you yeah, get us yeah. you get a real different sense of of things, how they'd happened then and then what's yeah. happening now. Yeah. And then you read them together. Uh, I think it's also got some of the best dialogue in the entire film all comes in this uh in this scene i'm i'm gonna tell you my favorite quote i think from that scene is uh they're talking about the 1984 ad Mm -hmm. um which you know uh jobs is saying that scully had tried to pull the ad right uh this was a huge deal. It went on during the Super Bowl yep. in 1984. Ridley Scott directed Ridley it. Ridley Scott directed mm-hmm. it. A uh, huge, huge event. Got everyone in the country talking about Apple computers. And uh, Steve is kind of insulting Scully because of his, his history. At, you know, he's not a tech guy. He's from Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scully's reply, he says... We showed a lot of happy people drinking Pepsi. We didn't say the world was going to come to an end if you bought a Dr. Pepper. Mm. <laughs> and that's kind of what Jobs was doing with this big brother advert saying, like, if you don't get, if Apple computer doesn't exist, the world's going to be tyrannical and run by these evil corporations and all this right. stuff. And yeah, yeah, it's, he might have overestimated that just a little bit. Just a tad. Yeah. Just a tad. But yeah, he, you know, Steve is so passionate about, about this. He, he's saying he sat in the garage with Wozniak and invented the future. And like, what did you do? Another great bit of dialogue. I think he says something like, you want my help, Pepsi generation? Like, again, a great right. sork in just a couple of words, but completely, you know, cuts jab. to the core. Yeah, you know, yeah for like, sure. Really snappy dialogue there. And you kind of feel after that scene that these guys aren't going to make up, but luckily Act 3 comes around and uh, 10 years have gone past. The character description is great. It says that Scully's been a, he's always been a handsome man, but he was sent to Florida far too young. And (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah, no, and, and I wasn't expecting that in the third act because the second act, it was just so, like, vicious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it ended on such a vicious note. Like, these men were yeah, so Yeah, you, you think angry. that he's, he's not going to come back, but right. all of the acts are mirrors of each other, and Scully does come back, and that's when they really do finally get to connect because they... Mm-hmm. Steve doesn't care if he hurts people's feelings, but I think once there's no more feelings to hurt... That's when he can really be himself. Mm. And of all the people he talks to, the one he 
chooses to share the story about the fact he's really met his birth father is with Scully. And that's important. I think it's because he's already got to that point where I can't hurt you any. Like, we've hurt each other enough. Right. So let's just... There's nothing left. Through. There's yeah. nothing left. Like, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about it that way, but that totally makes sense. And Jeff Daniels was fucking amazing. Like... Absolutely. The way he gets yeah. so fucking angry, like, I wish I can make angry look good like that. Yeah. Like, he's just so intense. Um, but, you know, it's just... It, and the way he would like yell, like there was like this sort of like he would be still, but he'd be yelling. Mm -hmm. It was like this sort of, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it was, it almost seemed very sort of operatic. Like he was like in an yeah. opera, again, back to the Shakespearean sort of thing. And mm -hmm. with the music, everything kind of reaching to a climax. I really do feel that particular scene was very stagey and the way it was edited and it was all just coming to this complete like peak. Yeah. One of the other things, they do finally address that question that Scully's been having for, for two acts already about um, the adoption. Right. Uh, yes. So the, um, that brings back to the whole parent theme, father theme. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> you know, what, what uh, Scully brings up is like, you know, why do people who are adopted feel like they were rejected instead of being selected? And then, you know, which is true, but then... Uh, Steve actually brings up a good point, which was actually he was returned. <laughs> yeah. And he says the mother he eventually ends up with, which is uh, Clara Jobs, mm -hmm. he says that she refused to love him for a year in case she had to give him back because there was a, a legal battle going on. So which he's, makes he's, you, saying you, yeah. he's saying what he learned from his mother is that you can refuse to love someone. Mm. Mm. And that's when um that's when scully and therefore us the audience get to really understand something really critical about who jobs is and it's it's added to by the fact that he mentions the reason he won't meet his real father is because he's worried if he does he's going to sue him and try and get his money right and i think it's even written into the the character descriptions or the stage directions in the screenplay that this is when Scully really realizes who Steve really is. I mm. think it says like he sees him perhaps for the first time or something like that. He gets his psychology in a bit, in a way. If you can't trust people because you're worried, even your own biological father, because you're worried they're just going to want your money. That's when he, you know, this is, this is such a understated part of the the script. Mm. You could maybe even miss it, but mm. it's powerful when yeah. you think about it. Yeah, and uh, which kind of like you putting it that way when you know he was rejected for a year by his mother in case she had to give him back, kind of really makes you think in a way. At least makes me wonder because the first few years of your life are the most critical. You're a sponge. You're absorbing all this stuff mm -hmm. that later turns subconscious. If he was, in fact, refused to be loved for a year, what did that do to him yeah. psychologically? You know what I mean? There's there's something there that must have clicked yeah. in a certain it, specific it's a great, way. It's a great question that uh, that Sorkin leaves hanging of course, there, for yeah. us to, to ponder. And uh, there's probably no answer that we can get to. But it also brings up a, a theme for the film, I think, which is, again, this need for him to control 
mm-hmm. because he says, I don't know if it was in that act or in the third act, he said he just hates the fact that everything that's so important happens in the first few years of your life where you have no control. He hates that. Mm-hmm. And so I think like that is a part of the drive he has to try to control things. He wants to control the options that people have on the computer. He's trying to control the people around him. There's just this need for him. Like he wants to control. He wants to be in control, which is pretty much the, you know, the theme, one of the themes of the film, I think. Well, he can't have control on the whole time. And that can segue us into the last character, which is Joanna mm. Hoffman. Joanna Hoffman. Who is the one who has to try and control mm. the guy who you can't control. Right. Yeah, that's true. So uh, she's there. She's, as you said, the voice of reason, mm-hmm. a conscience for Steve. She's meant to keep him organized, meant to keep him on track. She is meant to come up with practical solutions rather than be floating around with the idealism that he has that allows him to therefore create good things but also it can take a long time it can cause all these these problems with with the teams and everything like that so she's Mm -hmm. kind of responsible uh for this but i think what we should look at is just those those moments when she steps in as a as a voice of reason and it's mainly with relation to his relationship with other characters that she'll step in and say because the product she doesn't she just work is work. She wants the products to go well. She wants the launch to go well. She'll sympathize with him over the Time Magazine thing, but it's really when he's upsetting other people that she feels like she has to step in and try and tell him, you know. She's like the wrangler. Like yeah. She has to wrangle him around. And she's the glue in a way that is... Because she's the one that... I think it's in the... She's the one that is constantly opening the door. Oh, here's so-and-so mm-hmm. and here's so-and-so. Like She is literally the one bringing everyone to him so she in a way she's kind of like i mean she's kind of like his guardian angel i mean he's lucky he had her yes he probably would not have been very successful because she was able to kind of make up for that sort of a lack of social skills that he has with people she was able to bridge that gap i think without her people wouldn't have put up with him yeah so there's this critical moment in act one where she says and this is about the fact that he's denying the the parentage. She says, there's a small girl who believes you're her father. That's all. That's all the, the math there is. She believes it. What are you going to do about that? Mm. He doesn't answer that question. Mm. But she's starting to flick on some of the switches in his, in his mind, maybe, mm. about the fact that it doesn't really matter whether he wants to be a father Mm. the problem is that there's a little girl that knows this is is the case Mm. and it's going to break her heart if he's going to be uh, terrible towards her so Mm. that's when joanna starts to begin the process for steve of Mm -hmm. reconciling with with lisa in act two we've got that that uh, quote we mentioned earlier um, where she she tells Steve that he should uh, that he should ask her questions instead of letting the kid ask him things right. and she's kind of acting out in that way and Joanna's kind of trying to guide him into being a better parent and what he can do to, to connect with the kid mm-hmm. and by act three uh, that's when she really opens up that scene that we mentioned before where 
she's willing to quit on the spot unless he fixes it with his daughter. Yeah, I think she kind of, she reached her limit when it comes to him. Mm-hmm. And then what's great about it is that I, I realized like, even from the beginning of that act, her performance or her, her character is different. Her attitude is different. And all the other previous acts, like the act stars, there's stuff happening and she's running around and she's got this sort of like, I don't know, she's got this really like enthusiastic, like let's get things going. In the third act, she definitely has this sort of low-key vibe to her. And even a couple mm-hmm. times, Steve asks like, well, what's wrong with you this morning? You know, there's little hints that there's yeah. something we bugging g- we her. We get the feeling it's been going on so long. Yeah, that she's, she's exhausted. Fu- yeah, yeah, she's fed up with it, which reaches a climax to that scene. But what, what precedes that, that emotional climax is her telling him that he's going to sell over a million computers yeah. in 90 days. She's That's giving the difference him, this time around. Yeah. This yeah. time around, the product launch is going to go great. We know. So all he yeah. has to do is fix the problems with the people around him. And it was such a, it's such a great vibe to the way that yeah. the, the, the scene plays out because it goes through different levels. You know, she's yeah. like, you did it. You fucking did it. You finally made it. You yeah. made it. But you're a piece all of shit. Of, yeah. <laughs> but and it's all of this pain has been for something at least. Yeah. No. So yeah. she gives him the good news first to kind of ease probably like it was a technique. Mm-hmm. I think if she would have started with the other... He he would have shut he down. Would have, yeah, he would have uh, started ignoring her, and he she got his attention that way. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. He started like you know stretching and you know being all happy, and then but that that leads to, but now we got to fix the real problem. Yeah, you know. I've got this is one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's a great one to mm. to be my last quote for, yeah. for this episode of the podcast. Anyway, she says to him. I love that you don't care how much money a person makes. You care what they make. Mm. But what you make isn't supposed to be the best part of you. When you're a father, that's what's supposed to be the best part of mm, you. Such a great line. Yeah. Such a great line. Yeah. And it was delivered with such emotional authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. And I really think that if we are going to find a moral to this story, it's there. He's He's being told this in different ways. He's being told this by Waz. He's being told this by Scully. He's being told this by different people mm-hmm. about that difference between what you make and who you are. And he, especially at the beginning, and then there's this, this development over the course of the film, constantly associates himself with the product and the success of the product mm. and, the, and by right. extension the company and this kind of thing. But... Really, who is he? That's what he needs to know. It, mm. it doesn't matter what he made, in a way, if people loved him. I, I think that's where Sorkin really found where this could go beyond just being a fast-paced drama. It, it, it has that underlying theme of personal relationships, you know, right. what, what goes on behind the scenes, what right. goes on in someone's life. And, I mean, he's got a very rich biography to draw from. Yeah, and then, but to condense that down into, albeit 189 pages, but really it's 120 just a minutes. It's you just know? a two-hour yeah. film. It's really impressive. I mean, you're literally like downloading so much information so fast that it's almost like a, you know, like a truck hitting you with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But you you don't leave it for a second. You're just on that ride, like you said earlier, 
and yeah it, it literally feels like an action picture mm-hmm. like the 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 tension and everything really a, a brilliant film do you think you can get everything out of this film without having read about steve jobs's life that's a good question i don't know because i read the book before watching yeah, the film me too so i don't know yeah. <laughs> um we would have to ask someone that I was just seeing the film, but my, I think it does touch on a lot of the key, yes, key absolutely. aspects of his his life and personality. So, well, that's the thing. I think you know it was never meant to be like this sort of biopic where you mm-hmm. learn all these facts about him. I think the whole point is it's almost like a painting. It's a portrait. It's an interpretation of who this man was. Yeah, you know, you have all these books in Wikipedia. You can learn all about him, but this is literally a portrait of who he was. It's like an interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's it's more about like exuding a sort of spirit of who he was as opposed to, you know, facts or whatever. So I don't think you can get everything, obviously, but I do think you get something deeper than that. You get a little bit of sense of who mm-hmm. this person might have been. Yeah, and that's one of the magic elements of, of cinema, good cinema especially, is that it can communicate something to you in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. It, it can be just a sense of what something might have been like it's you know it is that world of yeah of imagination absolutely and, and making uh dreams into a, a concrete reality yeah you're invited into this point in time it's in, in, in history and it's almost like a little little open door you can come in and be in this world for for a couple hours and imagine what this man might have been well it was great to be in this world yeah for a couple absolutely. of hours uh, I don't know what, what episode we're going to be doing next, but we'll talk about that. We'll put that yeah, up on the sure. web so people, so people know. I hope everyone's enjoyed yeah. listening to this one, an in-depth discussion of the movie Steve Jobs. And on to uh, episode three.